Hi, and welcome to Systems Live. I'm Timothy Fitz. And I'm Jeff Lindsay. Really waiting for the cue there, huh? Uh, dropping the beat as I'm usual. I'm just always thrown off by how uh, you go into like this professional show mode. Because I sound totally different than I did a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I do. But that's good. That's how you'll find it in the audio. It'll be where, where. Okay. So anyway, start. I mean, it's the millions of listeners we have. Really, that mm-hmm. it just puts a lot of pressure on me. Yeah. I mean, after all those episodes. So today we're going to talk about service-oriented architecture, microservices, Martin Fowler. We're going to talk about Martin Fowler. Oh man, are we really? No. Okay, uh, so we're going to talk about service-oriented architecture and microservices, and definitely not Martin Fowler. So, uh, Jeff, what is service-oriented architecture? Oh, that's a good question. You should answer it. <laughs> You're uh, the one right. who hates service-oriented architecture, so we should hear that is a what it is that you hate. That is in my opinion, I would say. But uh, yeah, okay, so service-oriented service-oriented architecture um, is just the basic idea of like instead of developing what well, the opposite would be a monolithic web app so instead of having a single server single pool of servers running a single code base you'd have multiple pools of servers usually one would be talking to the end user and then another one might be a background back-end service um, that does some portion of your applications work for it uh, and then the services talk to each other over protocols uh, and service-oriented architecture is the idea of, hey, let's design our architecture around multiple services because services are a good thing. And then, you know, why are they a good thing? Well, they provide fault isolation. They provide, like, specific, explicit APIs. And they provide the ability to let you do multiple different languages in a single code base and use the right language for the right problem. Um, they let you take things down independently. You could run multiple services, one being a backup it's like a very extreme version of componentization. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's take componentization and then transform the components into different computers. Like, because because different computers is kind of the important part of service oriented. Yeah, it would make sense to run a bunch of services on one machine. It, it would make a little sense, but a lot sense. less. And it, it makes a lot sense. of sense in like a development environment for sure. I mean, Flynn is a lot of services on one machine. Mm-hmm. Um, as a general rule, so is a Unix system though. It's yeah. running a lot of daemons. They are, they are. Although the, the amount of crosstalk between daemons is much less than you might expect. A lot less than I would say in a, in a service-oriented architecture. Web All right, so what are some examples? What companies use service-oriented architecture? I mean, Amazon's the most famous. The, the, I don't know if they coined the term, but it definitely they were, they were at the very forefront of it many, many years ago. In fact, they wouldn't talk about it, I believe, for a little while um, because they thought it was too much of a secret sauce. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, so they, they had it in, I mean, like 2000, 1999. And they, they also had the whole, like, small teams. I forget the... Two the, pizzas. Two pizzas? Yeah. Is it two or one? It's two, two one. is, I think 16 people is the limit of okay. their team size. Maybe and it was one, and then they expanded Well, they, it to they two. refer to teams as one pizza or two pizza, and I think most of them try so to they, be one. So they, they measure their team size in pizzas. Yeah. We're such a healthy industry. Um, yeah, this is a four celery stick uh, company. <laughs> it's two vegans. So uh, there was that Martin Fowler article recently about microservices. Yeah, so microservices is another interesting one. It's like service-oriented architecture, but 
and then that's that's where I, I lose microservices. Like everything I read about microservices is to me it reads like Martin Fowler realized how startups are doing SOA and is now saying that that's a pattern. You no, know, I don't think he coined it. I yeah, I don't know. I think did. it emerged and then he just he and this other guy decided to go in and do this kind of descriptive um, so to analysis me, of to me microservices seems just like what SOA is supposed to be. That's true, but you could say that about most enterprise things that are more widely adopted. Uh, REST is what SOAP was supposed to be, that sort of thing. I mean, there's plenty of... So many enterprise things start out big and complicated, over-engineered, and people end up hating them, and sometimes that means they end up hating the core idea in it, the main architectural concepts. Um, They reject them because they get confused with the thing, with the implementation, but then eventually something comes up that more or less does the same thing, but is something that people consider, you know, it's a more open standard and is more widely adopted. And so that's, I see that that par- that parallel a lot, not just like in SOA and microservices or SOAP and uh, REST or HTTP stuff, um, but it's kind of all over the place. And so, the, uh, but, so anyway, I just, I find it another kind of uh, instance of that pattern. Yeah, there was a an interesting moment at the first startup I worked at where um, one of the technical leads sort of just had like this weird epiphany of like, oh, we're enterprise. Like, like at the end of the day, enterprise means like distributed, complicated systems with lots of developers, and that's like most startups that sort of hit like a B round skill inflection point. Yes and no, because one of the best books. On, on like architectural patterns is the enterprise architecture. Yeah, peak patterns. patterns of enterprise architecture. And, uh, and that describes a lot, although, and I forget if the examples were bad. Well, the examples are like Java focused. Right. And they, they feel like 1997's patterns. But if you re-implement them with sort of a more modern design flair, they all work. Like enterprise service bus is this great pattern um, that I've used in many different forms. And in some forms, it's like 10 lines of code if it's like inside a process. And in other forms, it's like a whole zero MQ stack. Or, yeah, I mean, a service bus is kind of a centralized, often a centralized. Well, it's like if you're developing like a, like a video game, like it's going to run in one place and it's enterprise service bus is usually just like an event messaging system in the mm-hmm. middle of the in the game. Kind of a pub sub type of... But but it, because it's internal, that's a hundred yeah. lines of code. It's almost nothing. Whereas if you're doing it for you know cloud scale, thousand nodes, they all have to talk to each other. Suddenly, it is its own project. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but enterprise has negative connotations, and it does. I think one of the connotations that comes up in the article is. Um, Basically, the, the, the like what people think of as enterprise standards, um, because so many things that come out of enterprise are like standardized, right? But they're not standardized. There's actually a difference in the way they standardize things versus what are open standards, which most of I think there's some confusion because mo- normally people people like us that grew up in like an open standards world, the web, da 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 da, are like, oh, standards are, you know, I don't think they're the greatest thing in the world, but they're definitely useful and 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 all that. And um, but in the enterprise world, they create groups that design standards, and then you know these there are these centralized um, prescriptive 
Like standard first. Yeah, standard first. Implementation Which, whereas first. most of the open standards that we're familiar with are more like CalPath, like uh, IETF actually requires like an implementation to exist, uh, that sort of thing, before it can become a, any sort of standard. Um, so there is a difference there, too, um, when it comes to enterprise versus non-enterprise. But anyway, so I, so anyway, I think that is... SOA certainly has a lot of enterprise, negative enterprise connotations, and microservices is maybe a way to kind of get over that. But I also feel like it's it's a way to just kind of talk about uh, in detail some of the subtle things that people are doing, more or less like modern architectural things that people are doing. Um, the SOA didn't necessarily cover because it didn't exist in a time when people are doing the things that they're doing now, like continuous uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting to look at what would have been called SOA in the in the mid to late 90s, because it's a lot of Java apps with like expensive, either like million dollar off the shelf enterprise service bus options or custom one off enterprise service bus. And then a lot of just like long running Java processes that talk to each other in lots of weird ways. No standardization, you know, maybe what a company will have its own internal standard. Here's how we do things. Um, it looked a lot more like, I would say, like Facebook with Thrift, where they're just like, we're going to do whatever works best for us. And then, I mean, they, they're doing it open and standardizing it, but like they sit down and they say, whatever works best for us is the only thing we'll do. We're not going to worry about, you know, patterns that apply across other companies. Whereas non-enterprise and smaller companies couldn't afford to do that. And so that's sort of the, the shift is that startups can do these advanced patterns now because open source middleware exists that handles the hard problems. Things like messaging infrastructure, things like, yeah, I guess so. And, and, Zero and, MQ. Yeah, and, as well as like, uh, you know, modern operations infrastructure stuff that lets people. Yeah, like so, so look at like everyone's writing PHP and just in a PHP page, making a web request to another like backend service is really hard. Like, surprisingly hard. And so it just wasn't common. It wasn't, like, a, a pattern that people did in the PHP era. It was a little. Um, you know, we definitely did it at InView, but it, it just... It it took sort of a different type of language and a different design mindset. Yeah, not just, just PHP. I remember... Because, I mean, one of the big things was that whole, like, async worker thing. Like, that's a thing now in, in web architecture. It's pretty standard if you can do any sort of long-running thing. But that didn't exist... A while ago, people didn't really know how to deal with it. And it was very common for people to do stuff inline and have blocking requests or, or some sort of like, you know, if they're smart, they would do what is basically async workers. It wasn't as a well-defined accepted pattern to do back Yeah, we, we re-evolved workers. it ourselves at InView. But uh, I remember seeing Gearman D for the first time and as a Brad Fitzpatrick, uh, uh, yet another one of his creations. And it was like, oh, this is exactly what we wanted. Too bad we vote our own that's kind of the same but different i want to bring something else up because we're kind of getting into that whole um kind of systems infrastructure type stuff and one of the things that people don't realize is that if they're running uh usually your web stack if you're running your own stack and you're running on your own hardware um and you have whatever the three-tier web application or whatever but you have your MySQL database separate from your application, which makes sense, right? And you might have others. Like, you are already that is working a with a, a backing service. And very often you start adding other things like, you know, other Denga technologies, usually like Memcache or whatever, certain, some kind of async worker thing or some kind of distributed file system type of thing for storing lots of files. 
And if you're using any of those, those are other services. Uh, and so you might have your monolithic app, but you're usually using other backing services. You already have service-oriented architecture. And so that's an interesting perspective. Um, I don't really know how to describe the difference exactly, but it more or less means that, hey, you're already doing SOA. Like you're going to have to be doing SOA in, in, in that regard. Um, and so you might as well embrace it. And that's kind of an argument for SOA is that you're already doing it. Yeah, kind of. Like one of the big differences there is that when you have two services that you own the code for, you have to do all of the deploying of that code and you do that regularly. You know, you might be shipping an update every day or every week. Whereas with MySQL, it's like you don't want to touch that. That is a very rare time that you're going to touch your master database and update it or upgrade it. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where it's the realm of the ops people, right? Yeah, I, I refer to it as slow path, fast path. Like it's it's on the slow path. If you have to touch it, that's expensive and someone thinks through the steps manually. Whereas like updates to your application are on the fast path. You automate it 100%. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just to kind of go on a tangent and talk about modern architectural stuff. And DevOps, because I, I brought this up when I talk about Flynn, is that um, a lot of the time people talk about ops people becoming developers. And that's the whole thing with Chef. It's like, oh, write source code that you can version, and that's going to manage your configuration and all that. Whereas uh, you kind of don't really see it going the other way, where you see more engineers thinking about operations and the implications of them running in a distributed environment and stuff like that. And so that that's kind of one of the things that's annoyed me about how DevOps is manifested, other than the fact that DevOps now is pretty much people just mean chef when they say DevOps. But I mean there's it's that ops. there's that core idea. Yeah. There's that core idea. <laughs> it's really just like it, it's really no different. Well, it reminds me. Sysadmins of, wrote Perl, like they were yeah. writing source code forever. So yeah, um, yeah, no, it, that's like sysadmin to ops to DevOps, and like programmer to developer to web developer to software engineer, which is totally different somehow. But uh, my my point is that you should all be working in the same paradigm, which is why systems like Flynn are trying to bring all those systems into the same thing. You're just building services, and they're going to be talking to each other in a way that. Um, that that differentiation between fast path slow path will still exist but it's not as obvious because um you'll be able to deploy and manage your mysql service the same way you would your your other services in your service or your architecture anyway i wanted to point that out that if you're you know most people are already doing some form of service oriented architecture in that loose way if you have backing services um yeah and you have some of the same problems um and then there are also like what's what's interesting to me um, and I was trying to find a good option for an interview was like MySQL is really annoying as a backend service because it's all like custom protocols and custom clients and there's there's middleware tools that uh, convert MySQL to HTTP and vice versa like DB Slayer which New York Times wrote uh, so you set a proxy in front of it and then you actually treat it a lot more like a service um, you know because you're just making web requests and you can load balance them and you can have pools of servers that way and then it's sort of falls in line with the service pattern. Um, and it annoys me that databases don't all just have HTTP as like your first choice of, of API. Yeah, I mean, this gets back to the HTTP everywhere uh, pseudo movement. Yeah, I wrote a blog post called Why HTTP that I think is still my most famous one, surprisingly. Um, people don't remember it like they do continuous deployment. but And it was just a list of like, here's bullet point reasons of like, here's the... F- like 50 pieces of infrastructure you have to rewrite if you want to use something other than HTTP and have all the same advantages. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just use the HTTP, like you can you can drop any one of twenty load balancers in there, or you know caches, and it's very familiar. And, you know, everyone all that knows stuff. it. Yeah. It's human readable on the wire, and that was part of the the argument for webhooks too. I mean, why? You know, why do some sort of uh, callback mechanism? Instead of like a consistent a, connection or... Yeah, it should just be HTTP because that's very easy for people. People understand web developers know how to handle an HTTP post, right? So that you don't have to worry about setting up some sort of persistent... I, and it comes back to this world where you had Apache and PHP and that's what people knew how to set up. And you don't... You know, how would you do a daemon that... that yeah, the world was so different back then. Yeah, it strikes me as like uh, great is the enemy of good. Like like people who really sat down and wanted what webhooks would do were like, oh, we'll have persistent connections, and then we need like to track identity, so you sign up. A lot of those you... people were saying you should use XMPP. Which yeah, and then you end up with this like overcomplicated thing that no one uses, and and so the people who should have been using who should have developed webhooks before you did were blinded by oh that's not technically the best option because of these reasons when in fact. Practically, it's definitely the best option. So, so have you seen people use? So it's interesting because um, service-oriented architecture is usually, and and we were talking about this before. There's kind of the two. There's macro and micro, because the way our web ecosystem is, where you can actually use web services as backing services. You know, you can use SendGrid to send email. You can use Twilio to do telecom stuff. Um, those are, that is you know in line with that kind of general idea of service-oriented architecture, you're using a third-party service, backing service managed by somebody else out on the internet. And um, that's kind of one level of service-oriented architecture is kind of macro level. Um, But usually when people are talking about service-oriented architecture, they're talking about the architecture of their system. something that they actually like think through, that they own. It's like, this is our system, so we're going to architect it and make it service-oriented. Yeah, I mean, so you, you, that's a great point and sort of comes back to my message, which is that I kind of hate service-oriented architecture. Um, and the reason why is that it's really, 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 really hard to do multiple services. Like, it doubles the effort you have to do for whole classes of problem. Um, and What are some of the problems that you run into when you do service-oriented architecture? Because like, your problem is when startups do it, like when... You're well, we getting... do too much. Yeah, that's that's the real problem. Is that everyone just goes way too hard with it. So, uh, like the probably the most fundamental problem I see is this, and it's all lumped together. Is people will say, okay, we want to do service oriented because it's good for technical reasons. But then what they actually do is service oriented architecture because it's good for people human reasons, and those people human reasons are unfortunately bad ones. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay. Uh, if a developer wants to make a new service, and that's a good thing because services are good, so we'll let developers make new services whenever they think it's right. And then what you end up with is ten developers working on a project, ten plus services. Um, you know why? Why use the same language as someone else when you can use you know Haskell or something weird and esoteric and perfectly suited to this one problem? But now your your team of ten has to learn ten languages to work with each other, so they don't. So now they're isolated. Now you have all these crosstalk problems and bus number problems and. Mm-hmm. And I see every single service that people won't touch because it's written by so and so, and they decided to choose Erlang, Erlang, yeah, or, or maybe, whatever, right? Or maybe and they are not the same, familiar with it. Yeah, it's the same base. programming language, but it's a different web framework. Yeah, like and then that whatever choices that some individual made because, or maybe I just don't know the code base because only one person has ever worked on it, mm-hmm. or only one person has developed it, and then 
there's like all these bad side effects fall out of that. Like each developer has to be an ops person now because they're the only one who understands that. Mm-hmm. Or you need an ops person, like you need like eight ops of people. Of course, for 10 that's devs. creating a, uh, a ton of work for ops people because they have to deal with all of these different right. And services. it's not it's not even that it creates a ton of work. It's that a ton of work just doesn't get done. Like what I, what I find is that people will build software as fast as they can, but they will implement like the the pipeline of releasing that software as minimally as they possibly can get away with. And often they just don't do enough investment there. So you'll you'll see like, okay, we, we check into Git and maybe our Jenkins runs a build, but no one looks at it and then we deploy. And Jenkins has 18 builds because you have 18 services and no one looks at any of them and tons of them are broken all the time. It's just like, this is awful. When you contrast that to like companies that work with a single code base and a single, single sort of monolithic architecture at the 10 to 20 developer stage, they don't have that problem. They have an amazing deploy pipeline by comparison. Um, and it, it's, it's, struggling. it's a struggle for me because part of my job is I go to startups and I work with them for two months trying to improve their deploy processes. And without fail, the last four startups I've done this to, the very first thing I had to say to them was like, look, you have to be less service oriented. You cannot afford at your current size to build the right deploy process for the number of services you have. And if I take a, two, a service or two away from your code base, you will instantly be so much more productive that it'll pay itself off like in months. So I, I, I think, and a lot of the times people have a hard time with things because they will couple ideas, um, you know, that they that kind of makes sense. So I'm, the, what I'm saying is that uh, service-oriented architecture is a matter of uh, the, the services being separate processes um, deployed separately. But that doesn't mean that they need to exist into separate repositories, which is how most people approach when they think service-oriented architecture, we're going to have each project in a separate repo because it makes sense. Like each service is a project, therefore each one gets their own repo. And these days everybody's using something like GitHub Enterprise that makes it very easy to start uh, separate repositories. Yeah, But that's usually one of the big problems with going down that approach is now managing all these different repositories. Yeah, I can't figure out if that's a fundamental problem of service-oriented architecture or if it's a problem with all of the version control systems we use today. Because like Subversion and Git just don't handle multiple projects, multiple Git repos very well. Submodules are just awful. Like They've gotten better in the last few years, but they're still really, really awful, and people screw them up all the time. Um, so yeah, the, the like, okay, let's do service-oriented, let's have 10 repos, okay, now we have tons of crosstalk issues. It's just yet another example of why it's like you have to have the right kind of scale and the right number of people for this to make sense or else it's premature and it hurts you. But, I mean, you can decouple the, the, the repository and service concepts. You can have one repository that has different services in it, and that starts to sometimes alleviate some of the problems because uh, you have one source of truth, one, you know, commit history, one uh, one place to see everything going on, which is one of the things you lose when you have different repositories is you don't see what other people are doing, um, you you know, to be able to comment or, or code review and, and all that stuff. So, yeah. I mean, that, that addresses some issues. It doesn't, that's not fundamentally a service-oriented architecture issue, but it's one of those things that but kind of is. gets caught up in when that approach of service-oriented architecture. Yeah, but I would say it is. Because it's like saying, you know, like, uh, you have weird stand-up meetings. Every stand-up meeting I've ever been in has been a little weird. A little bit like 
half cocky bragging and half like I don't want to have to say what I did yesterday because I might get judged. And like you can't say, oh, you're just not doing it right. That's not how stand-ups are. Like in practice, that's how a lot of scrum stand-ups go because I think there's something fundamentally wrong with scrum stand-ups. And so with SOA, it's the same thing. Like when you agree to do SOA, odds are you're going to go down this wrong pathway. And I think SOA is to blame for that. And maybe we need a new TLA to describe something new that's services but done right. Microservices. Maybe. Maybe that's what it is, but I don't think so. Because I don't see this conversation about the the pipeline happening around microservices at all. In fact, all I'm seeing about microservices, hey, instead of doing five services, let's do 20. And I'm like, oh, no, that's totally the wrong direction. Um, So caveats. Caveats like... Whether service-oriented architecture works for you and how many services you want is, I think, a function of number of engineers. More engineers you have, the more services you can reasonably support, and often the more services you actually want. Because two two teams of 10 developers working in one code base, deploying to one place, is usually worse than two teams of 10 developers deploying to two places that talk to each other through an API. So it's like, if you can line your org up with your services, that's really useful. I mean, that's, and this was brought up in, in the articles, that that's how service-oriented architecture sort of evolved was with these team sizes and try, having these loosely coupled teams. It's, uh, what is the, the law that did it, the, the code architecture reflects the social structure behind it? Yeah, the, the, the product is an instantiation of the business architecture. But uh, like if that. you have if you have uh, a bunch of small teams that you want loosely coupled, you're going to have a software architecture that's loosely coupled. That's where the service ar- service oriented architecture can and that's, evolve from. And that's where it makes the most sense yeah. by far. Yeah. Well, so um, well, so what do I advocate instead? Well, before we go there, let's talk about large organizations because they almost every large organization I can think of. Twitter, Facebook, Google, tech companies, of course, but um, they're all service-oriented in some way. I guess it's because of their scale, right? And they have all these teams, and I think with at, that many people, there's no way around service-oriented architecture. At a, yeah, as soon as you hit a certain level of like reliability and product complexity, you need it. Um, and so, traffic. Okay, so if it's inevitable, that's interesting. Yes, because I think that's it's a lot not, of people. It's not start, inevitable well, for everything, but it is inevitable for anything that gets really big. Right, and I think a lot of people think that because it's inevitable, they should start now. Yeah, they do the they do the startups are just a small enterprise mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other examples of that? Oh man, there's so many. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like the most classic one is let's hire one of every category that you need in a big company and let's hire good people from big companies. So like, oh, we got a VP of product development from Google and a VP of marketing from Yahoo and a VP of blah. And then you put them all in a room and what do they do? They try and recreate the enterprise setup that they've been in. Like, it's usually much better to be like, okay, let's find a And they're like, the man, we need more resources. Yes. So they start hiring more. It's just it's kind of weird. If you're in a startup and you think you need more resources, like, you're you're wrong. What you need to do is focus. Like, it's all about focus. Um, you know, Well, there's you, that weird transition period, right? Where you get to a certain point, you've gone through customer discovery, you know what people want, you just need to... Yeah, like, product market fit. Once you hit product market fit, then you need resources. When you can, yeah. when you can sit down and make the case can, that, like, oh, okay, if we pour money on this, we'll make back twice as much, and here's the proof that that will happen, that's when you transition into sort of being more of an enterprise company. And there's an intermediate step there. It's not instant. I wish there was another name than enterprise. I know. 
Big. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, enterprise is a weird term. What is, what is the enterprise architecture book? Peak? Patterns, Patterns of enterprise, enterprise. architecture. Patterns of big architecture. <laughs> P-back. P-back? No. Not going to okay. call it that. Um, so big companies are SOA for a reason. Why should small companies not start out SOA? Yeah, and there's there's times when SOA makes sense in small companies. Um, like a really really common pattern I see now is people go mobile first and they have a web property, and like it makes a lot of sense to split the website off from the mobile backend because you want the mobile backend to be rock solid, reliable, and that's much easier to do with an API than it is a website. Um, and then you want the website to because the website is going to have all kinds of weird traffic fluctuations and things like that. Um, whereas apps pattern is usually a lot more like after the initial surge, usually a lot more predictive, predictable. Uh, so you want like two separate pools of servers so that if one fails, it doesn't take the other one out. That's a really, really common pattern. And what I see time and time again is let's write the website in Ruby and let's write the API in Scala. And then let's have two teams like the website team and the Scala API team. And then you look at the company size and it's four people making a mobile app and a website. Like you, you just lost like half your productivity by making that split. You'd be better off. And it's not, it's not like I'm saying don't use weird esoteric languages. I'm just saying write your whole freaking app in Scala. It's not that hard. You know? Yeah, I, I see that too. It's usually, there's usually that like early split between two things, right? Well, that's how it starts, and then you have the culture, so then you hire a third person, and they go, oh, I want my pet language in here, so I'm going to write an F-sharp server, and you're like, really? That's where we're headed? Although, it's kind of it's kind of weird, because sometimes that, again, coming back to this idea that the operation side of things, um, if you have operationally-minded engineers, you usually have that split from the beginning. You're going to build a web app. So you're going to use modern web technologies, Rails stack, or something like that. And then you have people that are familiar with running databases, and they need to write some other, like, you know, hardcore scalable messaging infrastructure or something like that. And so they are going to write it their way. And Because that's kind of what, how Twilio started. It actually was two teams originally, engineering, again. Uh, one was the apps team and core team. And core team was... Um, more or less a little bit more responsible for the system's operation stuff. And they wrote a lot of, like, back-end infrastructure things that would, you know, queuing systems for SMS messages and stuff like that. And the apps team was responsible for, you know, the AP, what the actual public API and the website and all of that. So that's a very common thing. And But then there, you had that same, like, there's two different stacks and two different teams and two different cultures. And so many things extend from that... Um, yeah, and like that might not have been too bad if you're, you know, 12 programmers, six on each team or something. Um, but then it just leads to more and more and more and more. Um, and Twilio is a weird one because their reliability concerns might actually dictate a significant number of services. But that's an interesting thing. When you sit down and you say, we are special. We need to be five, six, nines reliability because people look at us as a telco. Mm -hmm. Okay, what does that mean? That means we hire twice as many people to make the same feature as our neighbor because it's not the same feature. 
It's a completely unrelated feature. It's that feature plus high reliability. And then you're sitting down and you're saying, okay, we need to go service-oriented architecture, which means we need to make that cheap enough that we can survive as a startup doing that. And I don't think that conversation happened. Um, it, it doesn't look like it, it... It doesn't look like that problem was accurately predicted from, from my semi-outsider. So I, I worked as a contractor for Twilio, but um, you know that I only had the inside of a few months uh, being there. Well, and, and and that's not even a, a, a. I got a sound effect in, and you didn't. Oh man! Apologies for my phone going off. Did we get it in the during the show? No. Yes. Yes. We did. Jeff already has made all the noises he wants to make. Are you sure? I. Oh God. I hate. I hate. I hate. Services. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, you actually did it. You didn't say Jeff Lindsay. I did not say Jeff Lindsay this time. I would feel a little bad. See, yeah, I didn't, you, you that's did it. the beauty of the pre-show and the post-show is that mm-hmm. I can just make fun of you mercilessly and I don't feel bad. And we can reference those shows. But pretend that's a different human show. being. He's like, yeah, I was, oh man, I was so mean to you in the pre-show. That's so weird. Well, so I wanted to talk, I wanted to at least mention my uh, ideal. And this play, again, comes back into Flynn, which is, if, if there is this inevitability of service-oriented architecture, when you get to a certain point, and it's always, you know, to what degree and how that is reflected in the structure of your team, team, stuff like that. Like, those are decisions you still have to make and make the right decision. But in terms of infrastructure, because I think most of, our, um, most of our tooling and infrastructure is, uh, and the way we think about Infrastructure usually when we start out is geared towards monolithic systems, um, and most of the big companies that do service-oriented architecture they have completely different approach to infrastructure, and that's the kind of stuff that I kind of wanted to bring into Flynn because the idea was that you would have the ability to to go down that route when you need to and as necessary, and it's really sort of no different than if you're doing it is kind of a weird realization because a lot of people think about Flynn as like an open source pass or Heroku but the other big inspiration for it is service owner architecture microservices and building that sort of infrastructure and I think the idea so is you that actually just just to clarify you actually imagine that people will utilize at least parts of Flynn in the live running web application that they're building Use it as service discovery, use it as a bus, use it as... Uh, yes. So it's actually, the way I think about it is not necessarily a platform that you just throw your app at and use. It's actually uh, infrastructure for your system. It's actually not... It's uh, a framework for SOA. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's how I design it and why it's designed in such a way that it's so component-oriented, service-oriented... Um, because I want you to be able to take out components and replace them and really have its components no different than, than yours just to reduce the overall complexity of the system that you're inevitably going to have to deal with. And so, but it's marketed as a platform. As, but the interesting thing is that when you combine those two ideas of, you know, the simplicity of Heroku and, um, you know, at scale, well-designed uh Service or architectures, um, you get something that's that's really great because all your services 
are the same thing. You can you can have just one service, and you can deploy it and manage it in a way um, that's a lot more reasonable. And if you want to deploy more services, it's 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 no different, right? You don't have to kind of rethink your architecture because your lower level sort of infrastructure that that compute grid is already there. And so, like Heroku, you can say you can use it and just deploy one thing. Um, you can use the same system to deploy your backing services that maybe your ops team manages, and so your development team more or less uses this platform like they would Heroku. And then when they want to actually split things out into separate services, if they ever get to that point, they can. It's just like deploying another Heroku app on their platform. Yeah, Flynn sort of makes makes a significant part of that infrastructure self service. So, mm-hmm. so you know, your internal ops team doesn't have to worry about deployments. They can just sort of hand Flynn off to developers if they want, or developers can even do it all themselves. Right, and it's, we, uh, the Flynn team kind of describes uh, Flynn as what the the product of operations gives to to engineering. Although I really think of it as this shared. Uh, either shared space or shared like paradigm where your ops people thinking are thinking in terms of Flynn and your engineering people are eventually going to think in terms of Flynn. So you're actually in this uh, kind of shared paradigm, which actually better encourages that whole, the real DevOps idea, which is you're on the same playing field. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not being terribly eloquent right now. That's, that's your usual. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. Like, like on one hand, Flynn is solving this problem of like this thing that I keep having to redo from scratch at a lot of companies. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't totally solve the problem yet because you still had a, a lot of like pipeline knowledge that's different language to language or framework to framework um, that Flynn can't solve. It's at the wrong layer. Um, so I kind of want to talk about my idealized version of services. Mm. Um, and so up to a point, I'm going to say 50 plus programmers. This is what I think is the gold standard. Um, and then beyond that, you sort of go to a more classical Amazon, Netflix, SOA model. Um, up to that point, what you really want is a single Git repo and a single monolithic app. However, your monolithic app gets distributed to numerous services where its APIs are basically conditionally turned on and off and its ability to access other services are conditionally turned on and off. So you have a single code base that exists in different contexts and the contexts determine what service it actually is. Um, And so advantages of that is that you have a single pipeline, like a single deploy, a single code base, single revision naming scheme. Everyone understands how to deploy anything in the system because they're already deploying everything in the system. They're using the same language... Um, perhaps Maybe potentially the same language. The same. I mean, you can have multiple language code bases, but yeah, it's one of a small number of languages, and it's standard, and everyone sort of has to. I mean, because it's a web app, you're going to have CoffeeScript and also Python and also maybe something else. However, it's that. That's it. That's the list. And to add anything to it means adding a language for everyone. Um, so, so multi language is still possible, but much less common. Um, I mean, that's usually what, I mean, in, I guess, medium-sized SOA, you usually have some sort of dominant language and then maybe a secondary language and then a long tail of other specialized things. Yeah, I think both Yahoo and Google are kind of in the, like, we have a language for front-end, we have a language for middle-tier, and then back-ends are, like, custom C and 
yeah. arbitrary. I mean, the fact that SOA encourages or allows you to actually build things in different languages and the whole concept of, oh, you can use the right tool for the job um, seem, seems like, I mean, that's in reality, that's kind of madness, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like you need a really strong case for it. Um, so at MVU we had, so, so MVU is, is this crazy, awesome 3D, uh, it's like Etsy, but for virtual goods, like random people make 3D art assets and sell them to other people. And then you can hang around in chat rooms and talk. So it's like AOL Instant Messenger plus a 3D client plus Etsy. So some of these problems are classic web, like the Etsy storefront. We, we had our own storefront. It could have looked like any one of uh, any number of other storefronts. Um, and all of that is classical web stuff. And then we had like the backend services that our 3D heavyweight client talks to. And those look very different. And we wrote all of that in PHP. And that worked really well. We, we were on the edge of PHP. We were doing some weird things with it. We had a, a few other you know, gadgets to make that all work. But it was mostly PHP. And any random engineer could work on almost anything in the whole code base. And it wasn't until the company was seven years old that we sat down and we said, okay, chat and uh, presence notification, who's online, who, what, which of your friends are online, really would like to be in a different programming language. Hmm. And now what's the cost of that? Okay, we have to do the whole pipeline from scratch for that new programming language. And then we have to train up ops. And this is like, okay, this is like six months of extra work just to add a new language with three months. Well, at that point, you have so much momentum having such a kind of more monolithic code base that it... To, to make that decision, you really want it. You really have to think about it. Yeah. Which is different than if you're just starting and you're sort of encouraging this culture of everybody going your own direction, right? Yeah, totally, totally. So we, we kind of went into it eyes open. You know, we knew what the cost of service-oriented was, and we could sit down and say, yes, it does make sense to use this language. Um, so we wrote an Erlang chat server, and it was super, super good. Um, but now there's the, this extra cost. If anyone wants to extend that, they have to go in and do it. So what we would do is we had this like concept of like a plug out instead of a plug in where it's it's a it's a webhook basically that happens inside the back end server. Um, I think I might have stolen that from you. Um, but yeah, so like like we would we would hand off like some parts of authentication would get handed back to PHP. And so we'd have PHP and again monolithic code base but running on you know f- just five of the thousand servers and it's the auth service and only authentication internal requests are being handled by it, but it looks exactly the same as the rest of our PHP. And any random developer can go in and modify it, and they barely even need to understand how the services connect to each other to be able to do that. Yeah, when we're talking, I mean, one advantage, and this happens a lot. This happened at Twilio, DigitalOcean, probably every company. But you have like usually some core business logic that's implemented in one of the languages that you're using. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that makes it difficult to either split that up to, to make it... Or or sometimes you'll um, it makes it harder to introduce new systems because you you won't have that core business logic available. Yeah, but in that in that way, you can take advantage of service-oriented architecture to allow that new service using some sort of like hooks or service calls to take advantage of that uh, whatever that core business logic is in in your original more monolithic. Yeah, that's that's, that's a, usually how it always evolves. That's too. the anti-pattern I see though. Is oh, that's implemented in PHP, but we need it over here in Erlang, so I'm going to re-implement another version of it. 
And now, like, oh, I need to go change, like, the user object in 18 places. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I want to add a new authentication method or a new, uh, let's use a different password encryption scheme. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that's a huge project. And that's, that's, the, that's the end of these SOA companies is they just get wrapped up in their ball of every change means 10 changes and every 10 changes means 10 things broken and then just repeat. Or another uh, kind of example of that is, you know, you have one shared database. It's, it's kind of the same thing. One shared database, but in one code base, you have all your business logic and models implemented with validation and all that. Whereas other database, other applications, other services, they talk directly to the database without any of that stuff. Yeah, so and then you can't get, keep any of your... Uh, you yeah, have inconsistencies. And, yeah, all kinds of... Yeah, using the database as an API to talk to other things is rarely a good idea. I mean, a lot of these are just anti-patterns that should be documented so that people don't people make a much more conscious decision before they do it in a hasty way to solve a problem right yeah i mean i would say no startup should do service-oriented architecture until they've raised a second round i mean that's that's one anti-pattern but that's but that's like it's it's not even anti like you're just going to run into them you're going to screw it up and do the anti-patterns because there is no like good soa for small startups save for a couple exceptions, save for maybe two services instead of just one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why I just say I hate SOA because it's, it's so much faster and simpler because it's, it's usually right. And it's usually the advice I have to give is stop doing that and you're not that big. You're not, it's not right for you or your product. Yeah. It's also part of that, like, everyone wants 5.9's reliability. Everyone thinks they want that. And, uh, and so they chase this goal for no reason. Like, like like double their engineering effort to have higher reliability and then they save half an hour of downtime a month. It was like, great. Did you really do what your customers needed or had you implemented the two killer features you had in your head maybe to have a product that needs scalability issues right. solved instead? Well, I, I, I kind of wanted to come back to your ideal, but maybe we can uh, open, open it up to get... If anybody has uh, stories... Stories or questions or comments or hate, fan mail, whatever. Yeah, I'm wondering how many people have have read microservices. I, it was actually introduced to me by John Sheehan um, at Runscope. And apparently there is at, at some point, right, right, either right when the, the Martin Fowler article came out, but basically that was when it kind of the tipping point and then everybody was talking about SOA or certain microservices and People are having these podcasts back then. We're sort of behind on that, but uh, the thing is, it's it's a it's regardless of whether there's a name or not, like it exists these patterns, and so it's sort of a, more of a timeless discussion. Yeah, yeah. Microservices also wake me out because um, another anti-pattern I see is if you have ten services, you have one or two instances of each of those machines when you're when you're a smaller company and like you lose a lot of reliability compared to a pool of 20 machines doing a monolithic app just because you can you can handle lots of extra requests like your extra capacity is distributed so that any one portion of your application that needs it can utilize it um, and that was an interesting part of Twilio was they, they sort of saw that problem and so they just said, okay, we'll just buy machines that are way bigger than we ever need because reliability is so important that it's worth the money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worth the whatever their crazy Amazon EC2 bill was. I could easily follow that up with them being more efficient with 
containerization as opposed to hosts. Um, but I won't do that. Because um, I would much rather prefer some feedback or some other topic. Yeah, so uh, so you're designing Flynn with lots of services. And right now they all run on Docker, which is kind of interesting. So Docker is sort of changing what it means to be a service um, because we're really commonly seeing multiple services per host now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're saying a service doesn't mean one host. Yeah, it's, it's like we're redefining service to mean process. Um, and we're redefining process to mean container. <laughs> yeah. So, so all these things are sort of blurring together, and I wonder, like, is that going to change these answers in the next five years? Um, it's definitely making services cheaper. Like, containerization means that I can, I can have a single instance that has a, a widely distributed uh, thing on it, and, and like, the, the unit of composability. So now I might not be writing lots of microservices, but I might drop a like background worker service onto each one of my web machines. Um, that's another interesting pattern that uh, I don't see enough of is have four different services and run them all on one machine. So you have one type of role in your cluster and then you have a hundred of those. You really have four sets of services. Mm-hmm. You still have the distribution and the... Uh, you know, isolation and, and communication. However, you don't have to worry about managing four separate pools of instances and load balancing them correctly and pulling machines in or out or doing capacity planning independently. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's kind of one of the ideas of, of Flynn is to make to decouple that a little bit more. Um, but I mean, that kind of reminds me of your idea where you have a monolithic, a more monolithic code base, um, and you're just exposing different APIs for different roles. Yeah, like so at Canvas we had every every machine ran nginx that load balanced to it either served files load balanced to the Django web server or load balanced to the twisted async io server and we did sort of pub sub over a couple hundred lines of twisted um, and that was a case of like well we could partition this out into a separate set pool of servers but then I need two deploy pipelines. Whereas if I keep them all on one machine, we have the same deploy pipeline, and the only difference is that our update script says update the Django thing and then update the Twisted thing. Like So it added 10 lines to our entire deploy pipeline, and we didn't have to worry about anything else. Still single code base, still single deploy chain. I mean, what I, what I like about these conversations, you know, these greater discussions about microservices and, and stuff, is it actually breaks down all the processes and, and aspects like the repository your deploy pipeline the you know hosts running on just all these things are part of this uh, this concept of service art architecture and so if we can break those down we can kind of find individual patterns for each um, you know like it's uh, talking about your your deployment pipeline, that's one conversation and it affects how you're doing microservice it affects how you you know whether or not you decide to do microservices yeah i mean coming back to to sort of systems theory like people love to optimize the hell out of any one of these units and they miss the greater ecosystem and how it all plays together i think i mean i think that was one of the big advantages that microsoft had that we sort of lost is having this cohesive ecosystem where everything is designed to work well with each other um, you know, having your IDE know almost guaranteed for sure what you're deploying into 
is really, really useful, really interesting. Um, and I miss that in the open source world. No one sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a programming language that has its deploy story nailed. I mean, Erlang has this a little bit um, because it has this dynamic code updating feature that other people, you know, others, other uh, platforms don't have. They sort of have versioning down, except that they made a bunch of versioning decisions that are sort of mid-90s and uh, optimized for a deploy is walking a thumb drive into a box in a heavily guarded room. Um, so it's, it, it, it unfortunately didn't hit that sweet spot of like a programming language that's optimized for quick, fast deploys into a deploy target that handles the obvious things you would want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like App Engine is another example of something that's sort of getting there. Yeah, and I, I think it's that... Um... Because you're talking about that's more or less kind of like this monolithic worldview uh, that that there's there is an advantage to it. I mean that's kind of one of the themes here is there is an advantage to uh, aspects of of monolithic architectures, um, and well, no, it's yeah. difficult when you do have like open like different uh, different standards or different um, platforms or different tools that you want to use, and they all have their own kind of world. Uh, and and I think it when it comes when you get to a point where you're able to talk about each of those individual concepts like uh, uh, your your deployment pipeline or whatever your infrastructure stuff and you can ger- generalize that in a way that's not specific to any of those so you are able to come with I mean that's kind of what Flynn is it's kind of a meta stack right yeah like I'm imagining that Flynn happens and then a competitor to Flynn happens and then a standard happens yeah and then a new programming language knows this standard exists and can then optimize itself for the deploy pipeline. That to me seems like the way open source will build this. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like a it takes much longer for open, you know, a distributed system to take advantage to kind of get the benefits of a monolithic system. But the fact is there are benefits to a monolithic system and eventually they they make their way into these open systems. Very significant. I see the same problem with like Chef and Puppet. Like I want Nginx to know that it's going to be managed by a configuration management system. And I want Nginx to understand that and then optimize for that. It's like config files are sort of like, they should be deprecated. We need a new standard. Config is not this like write once sort of thing. It's constantly being mutated and updating it is important. And we need these to all be standardized so that everything can plug into everything else. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just it's going to happen because as companies go more and more service oriented, and as companies do you know ten en- different nginx configs instead of two, this problem will start to get solved. But the fact that there isn't that push yet, the fact that there aren't these standards happening yet, is is a little worrisome. Like I feel like that process should have started ten years ago. I mean, everybody kind of has, almost everybody's just trying to solve whatever problem at hand, and they never really think about what they really want, you know, the bigger picture stuff. I mean, that's one of the benefits that Flynn had was we can, uh, and a couple of other people that are, are kind of thinking in the space like CoreOS and, and a couple of these other people where, or um, HashiCorp uh, recently started, uh, met up with them. Yeah. And and they're they're basically saying uh, the, the tooling in the world that we have today sucks um, because everybody's just solving their own problems based on, what you currently have, whereas if you can think about what you actually want, and this is, comes back to idealized design and core principles of Flynn, but um, you can come up with a much better uh, overall system. So, like the the config file thing, I I totally understand. Like uh, everything is config, like configured with config files, but 
it, it turns out in reality nobody actually writes config files. They write you know, configuration management that manages those config files. So why even have config files you know, as a yeah, so concept? So many DSLs. And, and I've seen some attempts like, for example, Zed Shaw uh, Mongrel 2. All its configuration was in an SQL Lite database. That was interesting. Yeah, it was. It was, um, except that so many people demanded it, he ended up writing a config file that Mongrel just read and wrote into the SQL database. Right. But, I mean, it's interesting that, that um, you know, people are thinking about it and the, the fact that, uh, ultimately, that you want something else. Maybe you do want a database or some sort of real-time, runtime configuration interface. What I've been thinking about is the, the paradigm for the, like, Flan ecosystem is where... Uh, Everything is, is a service. Um, if you deploy something, you're not going to uh, necessarily deploy it with configuration that it's going to manage. You're going to treat it like, more or less, a, a, a third-party hosted service. You just happen to be running it. And if you do want to uh, manage it or administer it or configure it, you do it via an API. Um, and if, it's, if, if, everything is done, if you can manage everything with an API, uh, especially if it's like a standard API like HTTP or something like that, um, then it's a little bit easier. Like every everything, you just configure everything with HTTP, right? Yeah. Uh, and then maybe someday you come up with um, the the configuration management equivalent for configuration for services over HTTP. Um, and so it's kind of interesting because you're sort of resolving the problem of configuration management, but it's in a different way. You're not dealing with configuration files, um, and it also opens up a lot of other possibilities, like being able to. Um, see configuration and, and runtime and, and programmatically get access to it and programmatically change it at runtime and stuff like that because that's, uh, you know, for example, load balancers. Uh, we live in a world where we have, um, you know, dynamically changing backends, uh, yet almost all of them are designed to have static configuration files define static backends. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's a handful of, of balancers now that let you do dynamic in some way. They're reading from a database or using service discovery or something like that. Um, but it's just an example of how that whole concept of static and configuration files is like not. Yeah, and the most one. common method is like update the file on disk, hope that it's right, and sig hub. Yeah, and it's like okay, if it went wrong, you don't know where you are. Maybe your old process crashed and your new one crashed too, and now the service isn't up. Like it's just the worst possible way to implement that. Yeah. So it's, it's just very interesting to think that um, writing software, and this doesn't matter what language you're writing it in, but the way you think about writing software has a lot to do with the way you're running the software and as services. I also want to see, like, go the other way. I want to see, like, Ubuntu where there's this, like, this this tiny Linux kernel that starts, and then Ubuntu just runs a configuration management recipe that creates the rest of Ubuntu so that I can sit there and say, like, okay my rules get applied to the base image mm-hmm. as opposed to my rules get applied to an install of Ubuntu where random stuff is in random locations. Um, and then you sort of end up with this like shared vocabulary between the creation of distributions and, and between you know, actual configuration for the things that are, that are installed on top of the distribution. Because there really isn't a difference there. Just separate organizations, separate processes right now. I mean, tell me what that would... Give me, give me a, uh, tell me a story. Well, so like like today, if you want to install MySQL on Ubuntu, you can do apt-get install 
MySQL, and then you get a MySQL with some basic configuration that might be good enough, and then your first inclination is to go twiddle some bits manually, and then you have a thing running. Why? That's that's 1993's way of setting up a server. Why isn't it like, oh, you want MySQL, you go into your Ubuntu config file, or your your language, and you add MySQL to the list of things you want on that server, and then you, you configure it in there, and then you hit a button and you have MySQL up and running in the way you want it, and now you have all these files that could be versioned automatically, they could be backed up somewhere for you, and you could never make a non-repeatable configuration. Well, so, so what's the difference between configuration and... The, it's funny because uh, configuration management is about trying to make uh, the process of setting up something declarative. Um, and that's basically what a configuration file is for a particular application. So it's, you can kind of think of a conf- configuration management as a configuration file for a, for a host. So that's kind of an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, yeah, but, with, the, with the important difference that you have a, a gatekeeper that understands how to diff that config file versus what the existing running state is, and then take a set of operations to, to transform it, as opposed to today where you're like, oh, I changed a MySQL configuration, I have to stop the server... And bring the server back up, and who knows how many differences there are between a point A and point B. Yeah, there's that whole uh, yeah the the fact that there's like convergence towards some. There's just like unrelated of... paradigms. You just have config files here, and then you have a thing that manages config files, and that is the wrong abstraction layer. Mm-hmm. You want you want like a, a type safe, a useful, a checkable sort of interface there, enumerable. Well, so I, I, I guess I'm getting confused if you want configuration management or not. Or what does your version of configuration management look like? I'd be fine with configuration management. What I want is to get rid of the intermediate step of an application management config file. Writing config, config files. Yeah, so, so maybe maybe configuration management is... Oh, God. If, it, if you go the SQLite database route, you kind of end up where the Windows registry was. Mm-hmm. Which is like this this weird anti-pattern that people are scared of. However, like I think that was actually not a bad idea. It just needed what it really needed was namespacing, yeah. where like an app can't access things outside of its namespace except for limited, um, you know, ACLs or things like that. And so, if you had this like strongly versioned, strongly typed, strongly authenticated. Um, centralized database of how everything should configure, then you don't need config files, and then your configuration management has this really good API to modify mm-hmm. things. That's what I want, and I want everybody to standardize. You know, that's the direction. I mean, the standardization is, is the hard part because a lot of people are going that direction with either ZooKeeper or etcd or all these... I mean, they call them configuration stores. Right, but um, then they write a daemon that talks to ZooKeeper and then writes an Nginx file locally in SIGCOPS. It's like, there's this whole extra level. Oh, yeah. I, and, and so that's why, I mean, there's people, like, for example, in the Flynn community, we have Stroger, which is for the, our native, like, load balancer thing. It talks directly to etcd, more or less. It goes through DiscoverD, which is an abstraction, blah, 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 but for service discovery. But... Um, the whole idea is that we're not we're trying to not work with configuration files at all, and we are trying to go towards this. Um, like if there is configuration files, that's for your initial setup, but you don't need to work with configuration at all because it exists sort of at runtime uh, or in the system. So, but the hard part then is is coming up with a standard way that you can write any application that can then talk to etcd or zookeeper or whatever you have deployed yeah you need some api in there and yeah. probably bridging yeah but that's so, standard eh, 
it's, it'll take a while for something like that to happen, but it sounds like, it feels like to me, we're already going in that direction. Um, I mean, I don't know anything that lives in that space yet. Well, that's, I mean, that's my space. The, uh, not, not my space. <laughs> my space. <laughs> but wow, but Flynn, like the world that I live Tell in. Tell me more about what it was like when you were a child. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, like Stroger, for example, there's no configuration. It's using... Uh, it's all API driven or talking to a configuration store and that configuration store is versioned it's not strongly typed um, but it certainly is consistent it's actually you know for a distributed system it's a consistent store so that means you have this sort of convergence across all your hosts they're all working with a single point of truth um, and uh, and it has some of the other properties you're talking about and actually one of the features that I really wanted not necessarily ACLs but at least namespaces is so that your application so it doesn't turn into a Windows registry so you can say that this is an, I'm an application I'm registering with that CD. I get my own namespace. I can't mess with other applications. So that's kind of going in that direction. Right? Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely headed there. Um, I just don't see the standardization happening yet, and I no, want to see that. And I don't see any uh, distro people talking about it. And I don't see programming language people. Well, talking distro about people it. are, it's, are it's someone else's no, no, problem. No, no, yeah, distro people. I don't. <laughs> They they don't know what's going on. They're still living in. in I mean, it's like all the people that are that wrote um, you know GNU software. It's like they live in a completely different world. I'm sorry. Um, actually, it's GNU slash Linux. <laughs> well, you know, all, all GNU projects, right? So, um, the the like CoreOS. They're a company that that they're a Linux distro. They're trying to avoid the need to. Unfortunately, because of the users they have, they're still kind of this host-oriented... I mean, because you have to work with an existing ecosystem, but at least they're thinking about... I mean, they're the ones that wrote etcd, um, and so they're definitely kind of pushing it in that direction. So that's good. Modern modern distros that think about things in, in sort of this modern world, thinking about distributed systems and all that. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, classic distros, they're only going to be thinking about their host and setting up that house and they're going to be stuck in classical ways for for a while so I don't so uh, we're at the one hour mark so final thoughts uh, sort of just summing up uh, fuck SOA it's not that SOA is bad it's that SOA is advice to startups is terrible advice and that services are incredibly expensive today and everyone screws that up um, so, so wait until the time is right and if you're under 50 developers, the time is probably not right to really go down on uh, the, the SOA. It, it, it's trail. like it's like any sort of process meme. It's like a lot of the time people just want to jump on the bandwagon, but they don't have the wisdom to actually sort of use it correctly and appropriately, right? Yeah, let's have a weekly meeting and a stand up, and then we're doing Scrum. Mm-hmm. We're, we're we're agile now, so we're good. We can mm-hmm. check that checkbox and then put it in our hiring campaign. Yeah. So not necessarily fuck SOA, right? Yeah, I, 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 I say that because so many people are so in love with it that they they just get short-sighted and they make really bad decisions. I think part of it is also just like most people doing SOA, it's their first time. Yeah. They left a company that wasn't doing it. They see the good parts of the ideals and they go for it. And I like that. I like that people are trying things, but now we're all making the same mistake over and yeah. over again. It's time to learn. I mean, I, I do this too. Sometimes I'll go too far in making something component-oriented or service-oriented. And I'll have to. I'll pull back and say, you know, maybe this should just be a shared library, or maybe this should be kind of a little bit more monolithic. Yeah, it's approach. never it's never too late to stop going down that route yeah. and go the other way. It's expensive to go the other way, but you end up in a place that's cheaper to maintain. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm, I'm Timothy Fitz on Twitter. Your program on Twitter. We're systemslive.org. Our next episode's going to be Friday, next Friday. Next Friday. We lied about it. Right, yeah, we lied about it last time because you had a, a flight scheduling snafu and then couldn't get into your apartment. We tried. We tried. We didn't intend to lie. Um, and then Systems Live, you can, if you sign up, you can actually... If you sign up on Mixler if you fo- and you follow us, you will get an email when yep. we go live, which is yep. super nice. And then this will be on systemslive.org. Yep, it'll be, uh, it'll be up very shortly. Thanks for tuning in.